Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. This week on our food and drink show, we visit the World Economic Forum in Davos to meet one important group that is rarely seen in the spotlight, the Swiss Armed Forces Culinary Team. We are chefs from all over Switzerland and we are doing competitions, national and international, and now we can show our experiences from these competitions to the guests here at the WEF and this is really nice. Later in the program, we meet one of the best ramen makers in the world, Ivan Orkin, whose business, Ivan Ramen, has proved to be a hit both in Tokyo and New York. I always feel like a good restaurant. Of course, the food should be tasty, but service is so important. And ramen shops where I found were often gruff, and I didn't like that. All that's the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. First today, we head to Switzerland, where the Alpine town of Davos has been playing host to the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. While you might have seen the array of foreign dignitaries and speeches at the event, there is one very important team that's been working away in the background, the Swiss Armed Forces Culinary Team. This world-class military culinary team is stationed at the House of Switzerland, the host nation's pavilion, promoting culture, events and diplomacy on the sidelines of this huge event. Monaco's Carlotta Rebello went along at the end of lunch service to speak with one of the head cooks and even to get a sneak peek of the main kitchen too. Hi, my name is Martin. I'm from Lucerne and I'm doing my yearly training for the Swiss Army here at the WEF in Davos. We are eight professional chefs and we are doing the catering in the Swiss house. We have different stages where we cook for different delegations from all over and we are really happy to be here to serve the guests and do our best for them. We are chefs from all over Switzerland and we are young chefs especially and we are doing competitions national and international and now we can show our experiences from these competitions to the guests here at the WEF and this is really nice. So tell me, when you join for the military training, it's one year that all men have to do, did you know already you wanted to be part of the culinary team or were you lucky that that's something you like and you're able to be assigned to that? Yes, I was asked to go in the SUC team and it was, okay, nice, I would like to do that. And now I'm really happy to do this for a couple more years. I founded my company last year and this is always an experience for me in the Swiss Army where I can show what I do and can take it to my company as well. It's a great experience with all these young chefs. It's like friends. Now, when people think about the army and food, they might not immediately think about these beautiful dishes that you guys are making here. They might think about, you know, eating out of a tin and pre-prepared meals. But the Swiss army culinary team not only cooks here at Weft, you also cater to the ministries. Tell us a bit more about that and what sort of dishes you make. Oh, we make several dishes. It's always what the minister likes and we make our experience with With our background, where we are, we have some guys were in Thailand making some stages and all that background informations, we create some dishes for them. And it's always 
an experiment for us. And the dishes are really nice, clean, and represent Switzerland as well. Okay, so we're now going to the kitchen to see how the Swiss Army culinary team operates in action. There is actually a meeting now. So where are we about to go? Now we are in the main kitchen and they just serve the meals. Hello guys. This is the main kitchen and they serve this lunch uh, 80 guests. They have uh, upper rich with several dishes from salty ones to sweet ones. There's actually three kitchens. One here, the other side for the stuff and the minister lunches. So are you serving food every day like breakfast, lunch and dinner or mostly lunch? All day we have breakfast, we have lunch and dinner and actually there are meetings in the afternoon and in the morning where we have some little free and for the coffee or whatever. So now we're getting ready to the end of the lunch service. What other things did you serve out of this kitchen this morning? For lunch we have a saffron risotto with onsen egg and some sprouts on top. Then we have a beetroot apple salad for the starter and they have some salmon with potato. It's a mountain potato filled with fluffy potato and some hollandaise sauce. Oh yeah, that's for coffee break. There are some pralines from the caterer. It's a bakery here in Davos, which uh, we get every day freshly. So you try to work with local uh, businesses? Yes, yes. Has it been uh, popular with the guests? Have they liked oh, it? Yeah, we get a lot of credits. <laughs> <laughs> that must be nice. <laughs> How's it been so far here at WEF? Have you served anyone quite important? What can you tell us? Oh, definitely. We have a lot of guests here. All the ministers from the delegations from all over the world. I cannot say <laughs> where they are and who they are, but it was really nice to see them and to serve them as well. Monaco's Carota Rebello reports it from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett. Sugar could be the next foodstuff whose supply is affected by a looming food crisis, as several countries move to limit exports amid concern over rising prices. Reports suggest that various sugarcane mills in Brazil, the world's top producer, are cancelling exports, while Kazakhstan and Pakistan have issued total export bans. Hotels and restaurants across Europe could struggle to cater to tourists this summer as hundreds of thousands of staff vacancies prove difficult to fill. France alone has an estimated 250,000 vacancies for hospitality roles after many workers left their jobs having been furloughed during the pandemic. Stopping for a pint of beer before your flight at New York's LaGuardia Airport can mean shelling out as much as $27. Now, city officials are cracking down on what they've called exorbitant food and drink prices at the city's airports. The new plans mean vendors will be able to charge only what you'd usually pay outside the airport, plus 10%. And a rare Glen Grant whiskey has sold for a record-breaking sum in an auction at Bonhams, Hong Kong, fetching over 900,000 Hong Kong dollars. That's 120,000 US dollars. 
The Gordon and MacPhail's Glen Grant whisky, distilled in 1948, broke its own previous auction world record. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu. When it comes to great ramen, New Yorker Ivan Orkin is counted as one of the world's foremost experts in preparing this noodle soup dish. He opened his first ramen shop in Tokyo some 15 years ago, and despite some doubting the chances for a foreigner to succeed in the capital's restaurant business, it was a huge success. Ivan went on to launch another outlet, and eventually when he moved back to New York, he expanded his business also there. So what makes for great ramen, and what will Ivan do next? I spoke to him to find out. First, Ivan explained how the story of his ramen business began. You know, I've had a very interesting life. I grew up in the suburbs of uh, New York City. I grew up in Long Island. I've always, somehow, since a very, very, very young age, I've been in just absolutely enamored of anything involving food. And as a teenager, as a young teenager, I got an opportunity to be a dishwasher in a sushi restaurant. And all of a sudden, I was exposed to the Japanese a lot. The food and the culture and listening to them speak Japanese, and it was very intriguing. And so when I went to college, I ended up majoring in Japanese. It's just sort of a lifelong love affair with Japan started. It's funny because I'm one of the only people I know actually makes his living in his major from college. I mean, most of especially <laughs> for a liberal arts major. I don't actually make my living really directly related to Japan, but I try to spread the word about Japan because sometimes I'm disappointed at how many sophisticated, educated people I meet who know nothing about Japan. So you you like Japan and you decided to move to Tokyo and you ended up launching a ramen shop that became hugely successful. How did that happen? Well, I remarried in uh, an early 2000. I met my wife on a trip to Japan. I was a widower with a child and his mom, uh, my first wife, was from Japan. So we would visit Japan. And on one of those trips, I was introduced to a woman who also had a child, a young child. And we had sort of a, I call it a blind date. She said, ridiculous, it was just a meeting. But I fell for her pretty quickly and we got married. We met in May. We were married in August. And she came to live with me in New York with her son. And after about nine months, I was like, you know what? I want to go live in Japan. And so we went. We just sort of, I sold everything. And we just up and moved to Tokyo. And she had a pretty good job. So she went back to her job. And I ended up kind of taking care of the kids. And I was a bit bored. And she told me, you look very bored. I think you need to get a job. And I was very interested in ramen. So the ramen boom Ramen's been sort of around regularly in Japan since the 50s, pretty much. But in the 2000s, the very early, you know, in 1999, 2000, 2001, ramen started to really take off. And all of a sudden, everybody was talking about ramen. Every variety show had a little ramen corner or some kind of a story about a shop or whatever. And so it was very fortuitous that I was interested in ramen. I started eating a lot of ramen. Then I needed the job. And so I didn't really want to work for anyone. And opening a ramen shop is uh, like opening a chip shop, right? I mean, it just wasn't very expensive. So with my savings I had, I opened a little ramen shop. And how did the Japanese perceive you, a foreigner, launching a ramen shop? You know, it's funny. I tell people all the time. People say to me, it's so fascinating. It's just an unbelievable thing that you were able to open a ramen shop in Tokyo. But I often say to people, well, you know, first of all, I love Japan. I speak Japanese. 
My wife is Japanese, so any potential cultural faux pas I might make, she was always sort of watching me and training me and coaxing me. And I love Japan, so I, I've tried so hard to do things the correct way and, and never be、uh, disrespectful or whatever. And so I think for me, the whole project of opening the shop was many years in the making in a way because I had spent so much of my life learning about the culture, learning about the language. And here was my opportunity to kind of bring it all together. And I had to work with my neighbors. And then I, I decided that all my ingredients would be bought locally. And I would walk in the neighborhood. I got my meat from the guy across the street. I got my vegetables from the lady down by the train station. I got all my dry goods from this little warehouse shop that was, you know, maybe a quarter of a kilometer from my shop. And so I just I worked sort of in my neighborhood. And I, when I opened the shop, I brought gifts to all the neighbors and I apologized for any disruption the, the construction might cause. And by the time I opened, I just had a whole legion of people that were rooting for me to succeed. Was that the root reason for your success, considering what a huge hit that place was? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for the success. I like to think that I'm a very serious person, and I like to think that I'm a very serious cook, and I tried very hard to make ramen that people would love. And I tried to make delicious food. And so I think that the food was good enough that people wanted to eat it more than once. And any restaurant that survives has people coming back. You close if people only come once and never return. But do you think you did something differently from many, many other ramen shops in Tokyo? Well, I'll put this from a British perspective, right? Of all the fish and chip shops, if you'll forgive that example, how many are actually really good? Right? If there's one place that's amazing that sources their fish and they clean their oil once or twice a day and it's clean and delicious, there's probably a thousand that are horrible or at least average. And ramen's the same in Japan. For all the ramen shops, the ones that are truly delicious, where the chef is sourcing ingredients and doing everything to make sure it's right, it's just a handful, really, if you compare it, right? It's a small percentage. And I think I was in that group. I was very serious. I made sure every single bowl was delicious. All my ingredients were carefully sourced, and the shop was super clean. When I was doing the research for the shop, I would bring my young children to different shops, and I would often get a sneer and a sideways glance for bringing in children. We would take four seats. We would often buy two bowls and share it with the children because they didn't eat very much. And so we obviously didn't spend a lot of money. And I decided when I opened my shop, my shop was going to be brightly lit, really clean. There would be candy for the kids. When a mom and dad with a newborn would come in, I would always take the baby. I would say, Give me the baby. And of course, at first they would get scared. And I would say, No, no, listen, I have kids. Let me hold the baby. You eat your ramen. I'm going to take a walk around the block with your baby. And I just wanted to have a shop where everybody would feel safe and comfortable. I always feel like a good restaurant. Of course, the food should be tasty, but service is so important. And ramen shops, were, I found, were often gruff. And I didn't like that. And I thought, you know, ramen's a wonderful thing to eat. Why does it have to be gruff? Why do have to, people have to be impatient? Why can't a ramen shop be a warm and friendly place? And I like to think that, you know, maybe I was part of that movement because now I think that's changed in Japan. And there are a lot of ramen shops that are warm and friendly and brightly lit. Because ramen is the, I like to call it the uber comfort food. It is、mm -hmm. just, it's in one bowl, it's got loads of umami, it's got a good amount of salt, it's messy, and I kind of feel like messy food. There's no way to eat it and not be messy. And so you end up kind of letting your hair down a little bit, as it were. And you know, you just have to relax because uptight people can't enjoy messy food. 
you know? And so it's a fun food. And I think that's why ramen has taken off around the world. I think that's why people all over the world have fallen in love with ramen because it hits all those things. It's salty and fatty and it's messy and it's fun to eat because to really eat it right, you're making noises. And, you know, I'm sure in England as in America, you're really not supposed to make noise when you eat. You're supposed to be dainty and you're, you know, you're supposed to try to do your best to not make a big deal when you're eating. But when you eat ramen, there's no way to do it. You got to be noisy. You got to be, your mouth is kind of your lips are covered in grease and and it's just fun. It's a fun thing to eat. Absolutely. Well, tell me, after a few years in Tokyo, you returned to New York and you launched Ivan Ramen Shop over there as well. Yes. Was it easy? Was there much competition at that point? I don't really believe in competition because it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, you're either good or you're bad. If you're good, you do well. If you're bad, you fail. If you blame it on competition, it means you're a loser. Because if you're good, people don't care. People love choices. And if you're good, you're good. New York was harder than Tokyo, believe it or not. Tokyo was an easier place to open a restaurant. That is surprising. Well, there's much less regulation. Obviously, I had access to amazing ingredients in Tokyo that I didn't have access to in New York that I had to import. I could be in Tokyo and I could say to myself, you know what, I want to try a new kind of dashi. And I would walk 150 steps to this great giant supermarket that had a huge section of dried fish. And I would buy a basket of dried fish. And then if I like something, yeah, I might call my purveyor and say, hey, I want you to get these products for me. But it was so easy to get all kinds of ingredients. And then think about it. In Japan, of course, the white face made people maybe a little bit hesitant. But everybody likes tasty food, and most people can put aside that feeling once they think they like the food. And a Japanese guest really understands ramen. So if the food tastes good, you don't really have to convince them to like it or not. Whereas in New York, I have a lot of guests that have never had ramen before, and they're a little intimidated or they're not sure. You have to really explain very deeply about what they're getting and what it's going to be like. And so there's a bigger learning curve and a steeper sort of risk of getting a customer to try your food, whereas in Japan, People are already totally bought in on the idea of eating ramen. So in that respect, the regulation was much lower. You know, in Tokyo, when I told the guy, I went, you had to go to the fire station to let them know you were opening this thing, right? You can have fire, you can have electricity, all these things. Or the health department, they'd say, uh, well, we have to do an inspection. I'd say, okay, great. They would say, well, when would you like us to come? And I would say, Thursday, 10, is that good for you? And they say, sure, we'll be there Thursday, 10. In New York, they say, you know, We'll come when we feel like it. We'll probably come when it's very inconvenient for you. And if you're not there or anything happens, we'll leave and then not come back for another six weeks. And so New York is just the regulation, the electrical works, uh, Con Edison, the health department, the buildings department. They're very disorganized and it's very, very hard to get things done. There's a lot of bureaucracy. It's really challenging. And whereas I found in Tokyo... They're so supportive of like, they'll be like, oh, this is great. The tax base will expand. We're going to have more opportunity. We'll have more people coming into town. They see it for what it is. What an opportunity to have another business. Mm -hmm. Whereas in New York, I almost feel like it's opposite. I feel like there's a little room with old men who say, how can we make it really hard? Hey, there's a new business over there. How can we set it up so they fail? You know, and it's just, honestly, I mean, I guess I'm being a little sarcastic, but boy, it feels like it because it's really hard to open a business in New York and it's expensive. I didn't expect to hear that, actually, but that's really interesting insight to what New York is like for an entrepreneur. How has ramen culture evolved over the years when you've been working in the industry? Well, the nice thing is that just more and more people have had an opportunity to try it and they like it. 
there's more and more ingredients available so that there's a better chance of finding what you need to make something that tastes Japanese. To have something that's quote-unquote authentic, you need to have the right flavors. Otherwise, no matter what you say, it still doesn't quite have the flavor you might get in Japan. And I, I think the ramen we make, a lot of it has those flavors that are reminiscent of eating in Tokyo. I think that it's getting the, like I said, we spoke of competition. It's nice to see that more shops are opening and that people are excited about ramen. I'm a Japanophile more than a ramen nerd. I'm not really a ramen nerd. I mean, I'm a food nerd. I love restaurants and I love dining. And I, you know, I'll eat a hot dog at a cart in New York City as much as I'll, you know, go to Noma in Copenhagen. I mean, I I like all food. And so ramen, I don't go from ramen shop to ramen shop and eat as many bowls as I can because there's so many other things I want to try. But I love Japan, and I love people knowing more about Japan, and I love the people love ramen. And I found that the more people get interested in, say, ramen, the more they'll say, well, what's going on in Japan? I want to actually know now that I've eaten ramen, what do they do over there in Japan? And then I'm now I'm excited because I'm constantly stumping for Japan. And I, I'm like, you know, you should go. You need to go. Well, I'm going to let you do that over here on the radio as well. I'm wondering, Japan is opening up for tourism gradually. So when people are going to, say, Tokyo, mm. when it comes to ramen... Which places should they visit? Well, you know, there's so many places. I'll plug my friend's Instagram site, at Ramen Adventures, and another one, at Ramen Beast. Nice guys. They've been writing about ramen forever. And at this point, when I lived in Tokyo, I knew everybody and I knew every new shop. But now it's been over 10 years since I came back to the States. And I don't know anything anymore. (laughs) So when I want to know something, I go into one of those websites, one of those uh, Instagram accounts. I also follow a couple of Japanese Instagram sites, Ramen Database. I think it's at RamenDB. So if you read Japanese or you want to try to figure it out, they also write about shops. And it's a fun way to find out what's going on. And then, and because it's fun, there's so many shops, they open and they close. There's a handful of places that will always be open. You know, there's all the uh, expat ramen guys are all uh, enamored of Kikambo. Kikambo is in, I believe, Kanda. And they might have a couple others, but it's a spicy miso ramen. And it's one of my favorites. It's really, really fun. They have different levels of heat. You can know you can get it like no heat at all. And they do a combination. They do the Szechuan peppercorn and they do the chili peppers. You know, one is mouth numbing and one is like burning hot. And you can go all the way up to the Oni level, which is the devil level. That's a great shop. And every expat foreigner person who's ever sort of been there, that shop over the years, a lot of us have tried to promote it and they've become really famous. Another one's Ramen Nagi Mm -hmm. that has shops all over Asia and a couple in the States. And that's really popular. They've done a pop-up with Bone Daddies as well. That's always really, really fun. They have a place in Tokyo, a place called Golden Guy. And it's a big kind of drinking place in Shinjuku. It's an impossibly small seven-seat place that you go up this incredible steep steps to get up there. And they have this tube that they can talk to the guest through. And then they have like a truck mirror that's pointed down so they can see if there's people in a queue. It's a hoot. And ramen's really, really good. And that place is super fun, too. Really, really fun. And if you weren't sure if you were in Tokyo, eating a bowl there, you'll be positive. Just finally, the reason why you are here in London is your collaboration with Bone Daddies. I'm wondering what kind of other plans do you have for, say, the rest of 2022? I am now sort of, obviously for all of us, the pandemic put a big 
wrench in the works for anything any of us were doing. I lost one shop. A lot of us, you know, uh, lost employees, lost business. It was a very difficult time. So over the last two and a half years, we've been preparing to become a franchise business. In the States, there's a lot of complicated legal stuff you have to do that we've completed. And we're talking to friends in, around the world. And hopefully we'll have some places in Europe. We're talking to people in Canada and we're talking to people in the States. So we're hoping over the next five years we'll get some Ivan Ramen open and kind of spread the love and do what we do. And, you know, it's funny because I think we all, a lot of us do different things. I think what Bone Daddy's does is great, but they're a little bit different than Ivan Ramen. And each business is a little, you know, there's Slurp Ramen in Copenhagen, and that's different than what we do. And my shop is sort of, I decided that ramen is like a diner a slice shop, a burger joint, a New York diner. And so Ivan Ramen is in the style of a diner, a lot of formica, you know, a lot of spinning stools, just like fun, you know, and you check your attitude at the door, try to relax. But I would say that Ivan Ramen does have the heart of a fine dining restaurant. The service is really, really important to us. We do feel that a lot of guests come in not totally sure about what ramen is or what they want to order or how to eat it. And we try really hard to train our staff to make people comfortable and feel safe. And it's a funny thing to say, but I, I've been in this business for 30 plus years. And I think people, when they're eating, they're very vulnerable. And you could laugh at them and say that's stupid or, you know, whatever. But my job is not to judge people. My job is to take all people's fears and uncomfortable feelings and take them very seriously. And, and I really try hard when a customer comes in Right, you can have the hangry customer who's starving and they're angry, or you can have a customer who just came from a divorce settlement, and you can have a customer whose child is ill, or they're just having a really crappy day. And I always love the challenge of having one hour to flip somebody. And the unwritten motto at Ivan Ramen is that customers should leave happier than when they came in the door. And we just run a little, a humble ramen shop. I'm not a temple of haute cuisine or anything, but we, we try really hard to make people happy and give them that hour. To me, that's why dining is so great. And so, like I said, sometimes people will poo-poo that and say, oh, well, that's ridiculous. But it's not because our job is to give someone a respite just for that 45 minutes or that hour or whatever it is to just kind of forget about whatever's on their mind, have fun, have a, a beer, eat some food, chat with their friend and relax and have a great time. And that's why restaurants are great. Any restaurant. It could be, a once again, it could be this Temple of Oak Cuisine, the fanciest thing that costs $1,000, or it could be a simple fish shop or a burger joint. It doesn't matter to me because nobody wants to eat foie gras every day. Nobody. I've never met a person who wants to eat. I might eat caviar every day. But besides that, we have different moods and we have different needs. But all restaurants should be the same, that you give a person an opportunity to feel special. And I've been in this business so long, but I still love going to a restaurant and pretending that I'm a, I'm a royal guy for an hour and I have a servant of my own and they're taking care of me and they, they look at me and they see I'm, something's a little bothered and they come running over and they say something wrong and I say, well, you know, I really wanted another beer and oh, you know, and whatever. And I feel special. And so I want my guests to feel that way too. Ivan Orkin, founder of Ivan Ramen there, and as he mentioned, he has collaborated with the London ramen business Bone Daddies. Ivan and Bone Daddies executive head chef Tom Moxon have created breakfast ramen in homage to Ivan's signature dish, breakfast muzzamen. And the ramen is available in all Bone Daddies restaurants until the end of May. 
And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbors for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Alphaville and Big in Japan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>